starts next Thursday, that's the 17th of September, in the evenings, and it's on Zoom. It's a great opportunity to explore the meaning of life, life's big questions and big issues from the comfort of your own living room and in conversation with others. Why not come and see what you think? You can register for the course by emailing me on the link uh, you can see on the screen next to me or find in the show notes below. Come to Alpha. It might be the best thing you ever do. Well, we're going to look at the Bible in a moment. First, though, let's pray. Heavenly King, comfort us, spirit of truth, present everywhere and filling all things. We pray that you'd open up the scriptures to us now, that you'd change us to be like Jesus, that you'd challenge us, that you'd reveal our hearts to us, that you'd comfort us and purify us. Amen. Well, last week we started a new series of talks thinking about some big ideas. And the big ideas that we're thinking about for this term are called the 10 Rules for Life. Our series is called 10 Rules for Life. If you haven't seen last week's introduction, you might want to check it out because it sets the scene for some of what I'm saying this morning. This week we're moving from that kind of big picture introduction to look in particular at the first of God's 10 rules for life, the one that lays the groundwork for and underpins everything else that follows. Before I start, I'd like to give a lunchtime summary so that you know what this rule is about and it's easy to remember. So here's my summary of God's first rule for life. To live well, we must worship God alone. To live well, we must worship God alone. To live well, we must worship God alone. Now that's a very small sentence with a lot of very big ideas packed into it that we're going to need to think about in a bit more depth. So I'm going to spend the next 15 minutes or so explaining some of what that means by looking both at what it requires of us, so what the rule means, and also why it's important. And then finally we'll think about how we can put it into practice. Before we start, though, we should read the rules together. So the ten rules that God gives us for good life as Christians are summarised in several places in the Bible, the first of which is Exodus 20, and that's where I'm going to read from now. So I'm reading from Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words. I'm the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first rule, the one we're thinking about today. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything 
that belongs to your neighbour. This is the word of the Lord. The first of these rules, as we said in passing, is this, you shall have no other gods before me. If we're to flourish and live as God intended, to live our best lives, to use modern day parlance, then we need to only worship him and nothing else. This raises two questions for us immediately. What does it mean to worship something? What does it mean to worship something? And second, who or what should we worship? So first, let's answer those questions. What does worship mean? Well, saying you should worship no other gods is something that I think leaves our culture a little bit cold. When we picture up images of people worshipping, I guess we can imagine thousands bowed down before a great big statue or something like that. For some, particularly those who think themselves not very religious, the idea of worshipping something is completely alien. For those who go to church regularly, we can come to associate worship with the bit of the service before the talk. Ideally sung, I suppose. Neither of these ideas of worship is particularly biblical, rooted in the Bible, or helpful. Worship in the Bible means to bow down before something, to serve it, to submit your life to achieving it or pleasing it. It comes out really well in the way that uh, Moses writes Exodus 20 and verse 4. He says this of idols in the context of the second commandment. He says, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. You see, there's that link between putting something at the centre of our lives, of submitting ourselves to it, is to worship it. And the first command is built on a crucial insight into human beings. That whether we think ourselves very religious or not religious at all, we all inevitably worship something. As the great modern songwriter Bob Dylan wrote, you've got to serve someone. You've got to serve someone. For everyone, there is something that we feel will complete us and without which we are lost. There is something that's more important than anything else and that's the thing that we worship. That is what worship is and it's something we all do, whether we admit it to ourselves or not. To get an idea of what I'm saying here, it's helpful, I think, to look at the way that Tim Keller, the American pastor and writer, puts it. He says this, The thing that we worship is that object or person or cause that is so central and essential to our lives that should we lose it, our lives will feel hardly worth living. It has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It could be a romantic relationship. Could be peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, even your success in Christian ministry. It's whatever we look at and say in our heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know if I have value, that I have value, and then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. Is worship. A moment's self-awareness will tell us that we all serve someone or something. 
But we're created to worship God and God alone. As the first command says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The command is repeated over and over again throughout the Bible. Ultimately, it comes to be fulfilled in Jesus, who's the centre of our worship. As it says in Philippians 2 and verses 9 to 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him, that's Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The first rule for living is that it's God and only God who should be the centre of our lives, our ultimate aim and the one whom we serve. This brings us to the question of why. We've seen what, what the first commandment is about. Why? Why is it important? Well, the answer to the question why it's important to worship God and God alone is to do both with who God is and who we are. We worship God and God alone because God is worthy of it and because we need it. We worship God and God alone because he is worthy of it and we need it. Only God is worthy of worship. God is the unique and supreme being from whom all things come and to whom they will all return. He's the sole creator of heaven and earth. He's the one who sustains all things. He grants life to all and when he withdraws it, they die. He's the judge of all the earth. He just is. When Moses said, can you tell me your name? He said, I am who I am. There's no other way of describing me because everything else is like a shadow of me. More than that, he's the supreme lover and redeemer of humanity. It was God who redeemed Israel from Egypt. God whose son came to redeem the world. God who fills us with his spirit. God animates and enlightens our hearts and our minds. Whatever else we have, whatever good thing we have, money, success, sports, romance, love, work, family, they're all a shadow of him. And when we put the shadow at the centre of our lives, we're settling for something limited and ignoring something infinitely greater. We're honouring the creation rather than the creator. It's as if we came across a great sports car, wonderfully made, and there by the side of the car was the man who had designed it, the man who had built it and who'd driven it to perfection. Now the car is great to look at and to admire, but it's the designer, the maker, the driver of the car who's worthy of honour. To admire the car while denying the creator his worth is both the height of rudeness and of folly. But simply God alone is worthy of worship. There is nothing and no one who ought to be compared with him. To centre our lives on other things is both unwise and insulting. That brings us to the second reason. Worshipping God alone is the only path to human flourishing. To put it another way, we need it. We need it both as a society and as individuals. As a society, 
Everything that we have, everything that we value, the, the dignity of the weak, the, the idea of self-sacrifice, the, the uh, conviction that human life is inherently valuable, comes from a culture steeped and immersed in the worship of this God. If you want to read more about this, go and consult the works of the historian Tom Holland, who started off with a completely secular mindset that all of the values we have now are from the Enlightenment and nothing to do with Christianity, and then so immersed himself in pre-Christian culture that he realised that nothing we take for granted, nothing we hold dear and value, none of the morality we consider to be absolutely essential is anything other than the product of Christianity. We need it. It comes from worshipping this God. And if you take him away from the centre of a society, that society's values will be very, very different. But let's make this personal. We, we need it as individuals. What we worship, what we value most highly and orient our lives around, affects everything about us. Again, Keller's very helpful in explaining this. When we worship something other than God and his son Jesus Christ, it distorts how we think. The thing that we orient our lives around comes to determine what is success or failure, happiness or sadness, in terms of itself. If we worship money or success or a career or even a person or family they will inevitably come to disappoint us. When they define what is to be success or failure in life, they can only disappoint us because they're finite, they're limited, they're fickle. That's not to criticise them. Each one of those things is a good thing, but it can't bear the weight we're putting on it. And if we allow it to change the way we think about life, about what is doing well and what is doing badly then we will end up disappointed, disillusioned and bitter. When we worship something other than God, it distorts how we feel. Here's Keller again. Idolatry distorts our feelings. Just as idols are good things turned into ultimate things, so the desires they generate become paralysing and overwhelming Idols generate false beliefs such as, if I can't achieve X, then my life won't be valid. Or, since I've lost and failed Y, now I can never be happy or forgiven again. These beliefs magnify ordinary disappointments and failures into life-shattering experiences. The thing's just got too big. And when it breaks, the disappointment crushes us. When we worship something other than God, it distorts our sense of guilt and shame. As Keller notes, when idolatry is mapped onto the future, that's when our idols feel threatened, it leads to a paralysing fear and anxiety. We might not get it, we might not be able to do it, we might not be able to keep them, we might not be able to please her or him. When it's mapped onto the past... When we fail our idols, I didn't get it, I didn't keep it, I didn't please her or him, it leads to irredeemable, irremediable guilt. I can't do anything about it. When idolatry is mapped onto the present, 
when our idols are blocked or removed by circumstances, it roils us with anger and despair. By contrast, when our lives are centred and directed towards Jesus, when he's the ultimate one we value and trust, our lives are built on someone who is both powerful enough to keep us and can never let us down. Moreover, in place of guilt, shame and failure, he pours into us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. For those who have Jesus at the centre of their lives, there's no need for guilt and shame. Yes, inevitably we let him down, but he's given himself already to forgive us, to heal us. He himself is our righteousness. We worship God alone because he is worth it and because we need it. So what does this mean for us in practice? Well, I want to offer you three R's. First, recognise. We need to recognise where we're worshipping something other than Jesus. Normally, the things that we worship are in themselves good things. They're in themselves good things that, that acquire too much importance in our lives. The things that in their right place are blessings. But they've come to acquire too much significance, too great a power over us, and become our masters rather than blessings for us to enjoy. In some cultures, they are actually other uh, idols, other gods that people uh, attempt to worship. Not that they are really other gods, but they are other deities that people put in place in their lives. And if you're somebody who's come from another culture, from another religion, I do want to gently push you and just say, you do need to commit to worshipping Jesus and Jesus alone, not Jesus and someone else. But in our culture in the West, they're typically things such as love, money, success, a political ideology or project, a family or even our nation. A helpful way of identifying what they are is to ask ourselves some questions. And again, only you can work through this yourself. What do I spend most of my time daydreaming or fantasising about? What gives me the most satisfaction when I imagine myself achieving it? Again, it's not wrong to have dreams, but it's worth asking whether those dreams are becoming something that's so central that we're coming to worship them. What do I spend all my money on? One of the reasons we encourage people to give, to give generously to the church and to the poor, is because it has the effect of saying to money, you are not my God. What do I spend my money on? What causes me to despair when it doesn't happen? What lurks beneath my most uncontrollable emotions? The things that when I don't get them causes me to throw my toys out the pram without thinking. Then having recognised we need to repent. That means acknowledging the problem to God and asking him to put the thing back in its proper place. And then finally, replacing it. Now this is crucial. If you stop at simply repenting, we can end up in despair and guilt. And I don't want that, and Jesus certainly doesn't. Instead, we need to learn to put Jesus at the centre of our lives in place of the other thing. That means learning to rejoice in him. The best way to practice this is to, is to follow spiritual disciplines, to read the Bible worshipfully, to give thanks daily, to commit our anxieties to God in prayer, to gather with others and encourage them. 
What we find is that once Jesus is back at the centre, we can enjoy these other things in their right place. To live well, we must worship God alone. Let's pray. Father, I just want to ask that you would help us to live well. Lord, that you show us where other things have acquired too much importance in our lives. That you change us and you fill us with the love of Jesus and with joy in him. Amen. Please stay tuned for communion.